Views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Brothers, it means trouble. You all know what was said in his speech. We did, Brother Chair. I have no hesitation in categorically delineating it as being barefaced provocative of the workers. On the point of order, Brother Chair, I would say we was left with no option. Exactly, Brother. Up to now, we've been bending over backwards trying to be helpful to the management, but the cooperation's been all one-sided. You were right. They fight us on every issue. Correct. Now, if I had to ascertain the sense of this meeting, from now on, no concessions. Every man in this factory's got quite enough on his plate as it is without having any more piled on. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, November 26, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and no, Robert Vaughn is not with us today as he has gone on strike and will be forced back to the show next week by forced arbitration, which will be part of our subject today. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. But I'm not alone in the studio today. I have two guests with me. One, a former uh, a person who's been here before and one who's new to the show. And uh, David Aldred from the Forest City Institute. How are you? Not too bad, Bob. How are and, you? and Andrew Lawton, also from the Forest City Institute. How are you? This is your first appearance on the show. Uh, on this show, yes. Yes, although you're not new to the station either, I don't no. believe. We've been on other shows together yes, on, on uh, the station as well. Well, our subject today is going to be basically civic governance, the next municipal election, and all the various issues that are tax-related. But before we begin, I think, you know, if people haven't heard about your group, the Forest City Institute, um, you might want to give us a little you know, dry run of what the purpose of the group is. Who wants to take that one? I'll and, take that Andrew, one. Go uh, ahead. Uh, the Forest City Institute is a municipal level think tank, for lack of a better term. Just examining, I, I like that. Yeah. examining the issues of civic governance in terms of spending, free speech, uh, anything that affects Londoners, and, and, and even beyond that, uh, um, any city in, in Canada usually shares the same concerns. So we examine those issues and, and propose alternative solutions to them. The spending and free speech is not the, a normal thing you hear in, in, in the agenda of, of a municipal type of, uh, of an organization. Is there a reason for that being included in there? I guess one of the, the major reasons that the free speech thing got brought in is because uh, our group proposes liberty through through fiscal responsibility. But uh, as, as you know, Bob, liberty has many different facets there. So free speech uh, as something that is sometimes diminished in Canada was, was an issue that we had to, had to jump on and stand up for. Now, are you, are you just a think tank, or, or are you also into the action end of things politically? We're, we're a little bit of everything, I think. Uh, we host uh, we host events uh, like one that uh, we're going to be talking about on the show, hopefully today. Uh, we've hosted speakers, we've hosted rallies, we've hosted uh, miniature policy policy forums. So I think we try and and take any angle we can at the issues to to improve them. What, what event is that you're talking about? Uh, like that one was, I know about yet. <laughs> the uh, that that was the uh, the SOS rally, uh, the stop oh, yes. stop overspending, and that was uh, that was a rally we had uh, back in October, and it was just a, an opportunity to for citizens of London to come out and say stop and, and tell city council to to stop spending their money uh, inappropriately. Well, our listeners will be hearing some some clips from that rally. Um, I got these clips straight off of my video camera, so you'll have to bear with the sound <laughs> quality. But it come, came out pretty good actually 
And um, I was most impressed by some of the things that were said by Kathy Shadle, who, of course, had been a guest on this show. And we will certainly find out why she is as controversial as she is when we hear her clips later on. Um, just again with your group, I, I was just wondering, you know, I know that you've been organizing and looking for people to run in municipal elections. And we'll hear a little bit more about that in the future. And I'm just wondering if there's any similarity between your group and this. This I have an article here from the National Post. Now, this is from March of this year, but it was an interesting commentary in the sense of a group uh, in City Hall in Toronto. And this is, this is an article dated March 26, and it says, Unite the Right comes to City Hall in, in Toronto. And apparently a group of councillors have gotten together um, like we have our killer bees, I guess these are their killer R's, the responsible government group. And there's 10 of them. They got together and they sort of call themselves a sort of a united right. And they, they cite the, quote, recklessness of the mayor's policies, which have spurred the group. And uh, the writer says, yes, folks, council's right is united at last. For now, anyway, bringing with it the embryo of party politics to the city of Toronto, the responsible government group these 10 call themselves. This group has been working reasonably well for the last six months. It is not a party. There's no party discipline. A member can opt out at any time. Now, are you guys anything similar to that, or do you envisage playing a role like that in any way? I suppose that uh, we, <laughs> I suppose that we uh, do plan to um, to be something like that at some point. I, mean, I think basically the idea is is not so much to uh, introduce party politics and to into uh, into London City Council. Uh, I think what the idea really more than that is is to give voters uh, a chance to identify with candidates as belonging to a certain um, a set of principles or, or adhering to a certain set of principles. I mean, we what you just defined for me was a party. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's no, well, but no exactly I, what was said in that article. I, I want to no, I, I make yeah. a suggestion to you. I think that party politics is inevitable at the municipal level, especially with all the restructuring we've had in government lately and the way things are going now and the, and the controls that are coming in on government spend, spending and financing and raising. It's definitely coming, and you can already see it happening on our city council. It might not be official in the sense of uh, an official get-together and somebody can be tossed out. But it's certainly a very real force, and people of like mind have to come together. I know I tried that back with the London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition back in the uh, late 80s into the 90s, and we held the growth on... We had 0% zero, zero tax increases during our uh, lobby period. And uh, now, of course, some of us are being held responsible. It's our fault that we have the problems we have today because <laughs> it didn't tax us enough <laughs> yesterday. And, of course... Um, but we'll talk more about the actual tax issue. I'm just, you know, yeah. does that sound reasonable in terms of where your group might be looking? Well, something it, like that. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, you're right. The natural voter coalitions do develop. Like you have the the killer bees in in London City Council. They're not a political party, but they as might as well be. Um, but in right. no, I'm not suggesting you're going to be signing up members. No, no, or anything I, I, like obviously that. not. But. Um, in the next election, the Forest City Institute won't be running a slate of candidates or having the Forest City Institute party. Um, but what we will be doing is endorsing candidates who are promoting the values that we see as necessary for London to succeed. And that's the part that we play in the election. Interesting. 
And hopefully provide some assistance for those candidates. Yeah, absolutely. As well, yes. uh, through training, promotions, uh, any, anything we can to, to help those uh, those people get elected. Okay, we'll get back to the election near near the end of the program and what we might foresee in the near future. By the way, do you know that the uh, the next election is not likely going to be in November? It's going to be in October because of legislation coming before the provincial parliament right now. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. However. Uh, Obviously, I don't know if you noticed, but the streets are a little clearer for a lot of drivers, <laughs> depending where you're driving in town, as long as you're not around construction. Um, it looks like it's going to be a long one for those of you who don't live in the city of London. The city of London is undergoing a bus strike and has been now since last week, Monday. And at first, everyone was thinking it might be, you know, a day or two, or maybe it might not happen. Uh, it already looks like the earliest they'll get back to full effective service, even if they started talking now, would be about Christmas. So the Christmas season's shot. And uh, they're now talking like it's going to be a pretty long one. Uh, who's winning? Who's losing? How would the Forest City Institute um, look at the bus strike? Or how, how what would be the what would be your your? <laughs> well, it's easy to identify who's losing anyway. Yes. <laughs> well, who's losing is pretty much everyone but the union. I mean, yep. even even the drivers are, are losing in this case. But uh, uh, the problem with it with this bus strike is well, there, there's a lot of problems to it. But one of the biggest ones, and and a lot of people don't don't realize this, is that London Transit commission is for lack of a better term a, a municipal crown corporation it's set up by an act of city council and if city council voted to order them back to work they would have to abide by that order so the fact that city council hasn't done anything is that a fact that is a fact it's uh, directly from the london transit website that any decision that council makes regarding the future of london transit is a directive that they cannot Oppose. Well, that's regarding the future of the company. Does that regard the future of, of the actual labor relations in the union itself? Can they, they can't interfere in that, can they? Well, theoretically, the, uh, the the London Transit Commission could be ordered to get rid of the union. Now, I, I don't suggest that uh, that City Council would be considering doing that, but the fact remains that uh, the mayor is only fooling. Londoners, if she says that she's she has limited uh, limited ability to to change things, because city council has complete autonomy over London Transit Commission. So, if they were really saying that they're doing all they can, which as many councillors have said, they're lying. That's an interesting take because. Um you know, even if they do go back, even if they, say, get everything they want and we have a settlement by Monday and they're back again in three weeks or however long it takes them to get started up again, um, I don't think the issue will, you know, to a, to a group like yourself and to forward-thinking candidates, this issue won't go away. It's going to happen again. And, and uh, the very situation, I think, is a little awkward considering that we have around us all kinds of communities that have their own uh, contracted out bus services still, still partially funded or totally funded by tax dollars, but yet they're at an arm's length. And if, if they don't want the bus company anymore, they're not saddled with the assets of the company and all that kind of thing. Um, there is talk about privatizing, contracting out, however you want to word it. Is that a direction the Forest City Institute would move in? Absolutely. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in London. Uh, London politics, like many municipal politics, um, is rather beholden to unions themselves, and they don't want to. They don't want to lose the the, uh, uh, the effectiveness at, uh, uh, of unions uh, getting out the vote for them or for certain councillors. Uh, but uh, absolutely, privatization of at least the contracting would be uh, something the Forest City Institute uh, would be behind. I mean, the the funny thing is that. 
the rationale for for transit being a public monopoly in the first place is that it is an essential service. Well, if it's an essential service, why are we leaving it in the hands of a public monopoly well, when these things are going to happen all the time? You know, and if, and, and if the essential service argument even stuck for a minute, that means we would have all of our food provided for us by government because that's the most essential thing oh, yeah. you have on a daily basis. Um, Can we also make the LCBO an essential service if we're just yeah. going, around, going around handing out that title? Essential service is a name people give to a monopoly that they want to hold and make sure that they're the only essential people offering the service and nobody else can offer that service. Listen, guys, we're already at the quarter past the hour, and um, we're going to move on to the next section where we want to talk about is London a well-run city, and what we want to talk about is all the kinds of things that the city is involved with, and i got a little story of my own to tell. But the first thing we're going to hear before uh, or during this quick break, we're going to have a little smile with uh, uh, (laughs) a little skit from Yes Minister talking about local government and its impact on senior levels of government. Really funny, I had a conversation with uh, uh, a mutual friend of mine who was looking at, uh, he said, Bob, you can't believe how corrupt government is at the federal level. I said, the federal level? I said, I'm preparing for a show tomorrow about the municipal level. I think they got you beat 10 to 1. And sure enough, I find this clip, and guess what they say in that? Pretty well the same thing that I was just saying to my friend. And then on the other side, we're going to hear a clip from A Channel, Monday Night's News, where uh, we hear... Um, um, Paul Van Meerbergen, you know, getting in a little trouble with his let, let the meat cake argue, uh, ar- argument he had about the sewer and water rates going up and various other municipal issues. We'll be back right after this break. I do want to be quite clear about this, Humphrey. I would never have given you local government if I thought you were going to let Hacker do anything about it. Well, I'm sure he won't be able to. Nobody else has. <laughs> That's not the point, Humphrey. We've found in the past that all local government reforms rebound on us. Whenever anybody finds a way of saving money or cutting staff in local government, you'll find it works for Whitehall just as well. Yes, but local government is extravagant, overstaffed and incompetent, whereas we... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly so. We're all going to be paying more for water and sewer services next year. London City Council approved increases amounting to nearly 10 times the rate of inflation. The decision came after a sometimes ugly debate that had the mayor and councillors exchanging accusations. Brian Bicknell joins us live to explain. Brian. Well, Terry, it's not whether we're going to be paying more for water, it's how much more. And in this case, it was a difference of $10 a year that had councillors divided. But in my view, and this is a democratic chamber, in my view, that is a let them eat cake attitude. No, it isn't. It is. It's offensive. No, it's not offensive. It's reality. But I'm not here to argue with you. I'm well, talking about something. Yeah, listen to me then. Listen to me. I'm the chair. You're out of order. You might not realize it from watching this exchange, but Councillor Paul Van Meerbergen and Mayor Anne-Marie DeSico Best are actually on the same side on this issue. Emotions were running high over how much more Londoners are going to have to pay next year on their water bills. We heard the arguments that $11 wasn't very much money. Well, when somebody's not working, that is a lot of money. Council voted 10 to 8 to increase water and sewer rates by 8 and 9% respectively. It means a typical London household will pay $777 for services. 
about $60 more than this year. Sparks flew over a Board of Control recommendation to claw back the increases to 7 and 7.2 percent. That would have saved ratepayers about $10 a year. It's $10. It's not the end of the world, but it's, a, it's a, an important signal that we are going to look for savings everywhere we can to get our costs down. Some say the problem goes back years, even decades, to when councils of the day failed to make the necessary investments to upgrade the infrastructure. So even though we're in a tough time, we're trying to move ahead uh, in a way that we're managing the budget, that we're moving ahead to, to protect our infrastructure and at the same time to be sensitive to people who are struggling economically. One councillor even used a prop to make her point. Nancy Branscombe held up a two-year-old newspaper clipping about the infamous London yeah. sinkhole. When you don't look after your infrastructure. You get sinkholes and front-page headlines, and that for sure affects the taxpayer because it costs you double or triple to repair something that you should have been fixing all along. And welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation, or email us at just write chrw at gmail.com or visit our website www.justrightmedia.org for a complete archive of this and all past shows. And again, those of you who are tuning in late, Robert Vaughn's not with us today, but we'll be back next week because he had work out of town. He's not really on strike, like I said <laughs> at the beginning of the show. Um, and, and, of course, I'm joined in the studio right now with, with two guests from the Forest City Institute. We're talking about civic governance and taxes and those kinds of things. And my guests are David Aldred and Andrew Lawton. Welcome again, fellows. Thank you. Uh, what do you think of what you just heard in terms of that little A-channel clip from last Monday night and uh, the debate there? Hun ten times inflation rate increases. Is that... Uh, you know, that's not the first increase, I think, this year either, it, is it? It's, it's unfortunate and it's scary, but the worst part of it is that it's not surprising at all. No, in fact, it was a typical day at council as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's actually a good bargain for us then. <laughs> well, are you saying we got a good bargain? No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm just saying compared to some of the other increases we see, that uh, that number is not out of place there. I mean, you have uh, London getting uh, 121% more funding than... Uh, Per, like per capita than other cities uh, of similar size in Canada, yet as well, a result... What does our, that mean, 121% more than... Well, we're getting more money from uh, in transfers from the federal and provincial governments. Oh, for, in uh, transfer payments. Yes. Okay. However, we're also spending a lot more than other uh, than other ones and being taxed a lot more than other cities. So and still not keeping up. No. Okay. Uh, Londoners are not... Uh, they're paying, uh, paying for what they get, but they're not getting what they pay for. Isn't it a fact that... that there isn't a municipality in the country that operates under its own budget with its own money and its own tax base. Isn't, is there any municipality that exists anywhere in North America that isn't federally, provincially, uh, state-funded, if you're talking about the state? That maybe, I, maybe, in, maybe in Alberta, but even then, I don't have any numbers <laughs> to I suspect some small rural cities. There's a, there's a, a, a small city in Indiana that's just been uh, getting some news for actually lowering taxes and lowering spending, but that, that's certainly not the norm. Uh, if you ask the question whether London is well run, I guess the answer is depends on whether you're asking the question as an absolute or, or relative. Or whether, you're so. or whether you're reading the London Free Press. Yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, here it I, says, in that I've, case, we have our answer. I've got it right here. July 17th, London Free Press. Headline, City Well Run. Study finds. And London is one of the top 10 best-run cities in Canada, according to Maclean's magazine, and they covered that one there. Interesting here, you know, it's another headline on the Londoner, and this is October 14th. 
And uh, what made London one of the best-run cities? And you see headlines like that. You know, Londoners are reading this stuff and thinking, wow, if this is a good-run, you know, well-run city, what are the other ones like? And then, of course, uh, I, th- I thought this was a little interesting. Um, this appeared November 18. Well, that's not so old. Um, larger cities. One in four residents aren't that happy with their municipal government, a poll suggests. And interesting, it says that uh, quality of life praised, not so with local government and confidence in government is all down to a pretty <laughs> low percentage. Um, how is it all these? Are, are there cities worse than us? I, I'm sure there are cities worse than us. But again, you're you're looking at... We're not, uh, I'm talking in terms of the fiscal, you know, well, and that's quality exactly of life thing. is an entirely separate thing, I think. But. There is no measure for how well run a city is. There's there's no objective measure here. The uh, the only things that we can look at with absolute certainty are the numbers. And the numbers say that Londoners are overtaxed and are not getting representation at the, the fiscal level. And, and that's the only measure you can go by, whether or you, not a you city... Just, you just hit on a point that... that that strikes deep with me when you said there's no objective way to measure the value of our councils and stuff. You know, that's the same principle that applies to any shotgun relationship where you where you don't have freedom of association when you're stuck with a party and there's no competition there. It's the same with the union. What, what is a bus driver worth? We don't know unless we let bus drivers go on a free market and compete with each other. Then yeah. we'll find out what they're really exactly. worth. Same with teachers. Same with civil servants. None of them are allowed to be placed on an objective footing, which is, you know, the real world out there. So they cushion themselves with political, you know, cushions, so to speak. Um, I, I personally, I think, I think we're, we're doomed. I don't see any future for, for our cities. I really don't. I, I see us getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the more planning they do, the worse it's going to get with the centralized municipal planning. Am I, am I just out in cloud, cloud nine? Is there well, any I, hope out there? I would say there? that London is, is, is actually a little bit more fortunate than other cities. And I, and I would suggest well, I'll that, agree our, with that our problems, are, our, our problems are less intractable than they would be in, in, say, large cities like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, where the municipal government is there have taken even larger roles uh, in various different aspects. Well, we'll be hearing so Kathy Shadle on that in some detail well, very shortly. But And I think that, that what you touched on there about uh, about being doomed, that's the exact attitude that's the reason the Forest City Institute is here in the first place. Because um, all of us were in that same boat. We're all reading the headlines, watching A-Channel when we have to, and, and seeing... This is not this is not my city. I mean, I live here, I pay taxes here, but this is not a city that represents me. And that's why uh, I think it is important now that when we have an election that's uh, less than a year off, that we do call out candidates who stand up for the, for the values that we want, who stand up for for market based solutions to uh, to the city's problems, and and that they run in and we get them elected to council. I think that's you know, how we can save our city. I do believe it can be done, but I can tell you a problem I've already had with success with that very approach that you took, and that's the problem is especially people on. On the right, the so-called right. Um, the bigger picture, nobody believes they, they can really do much about, but on a local picture, whenever they get w- the right, quote-unquote, wins a minor victory, they give up. They think that was the end of the, the ball game. I, I can't tell you how many activists just disappeared on the right when, for example, Mike Harris got elected, they thought they were saved. That the Archangel God came, you know, <laughs> Archangel Michael <laughs> came down and, and was, was there to save them, and they all just disappeared. None of them ever returned to the political field. And what happened? Harris didn't make things better, made it worse. We're still getting worse. I don't see taxes ever at a zero percent. I see them going up until people are going to lose their homes in droves. It's just, you know, or the city's going to have to own well, everybody's homes. That's entirely problem. I mean, and the thing with the right wing is, of course, that we're not paid 
need to be activists. <laughs> yeah. Now that's a that's a that's a that's a good point, Dave. I, I have to agree with you there. That uh, um, it's ironic that most people on the right seem to be on the producer side of the economy, and most people on the left seem to be on the consumption side who want to consume at the expense yeah. of the producers. And, and I mean, that being said, I don't see this as a right-wing, left-wing thing. I see it as just doing what's right, and and that's where I think that we should be able to reach reach across the aisle here and take people from all we'll say party stripes, all ideological stripes, and say, look, you need to recognize that this is not the city you want to live in. This is not uh, a city that's, that's headed for success. This is a city that had uh, Sun Life withdrawing an $80 million investment just because they wouldn't cooperate with investors. Well, I, I, I hear you, but, you know, I, I don't think you can dismiss the fact that there's an ideological battle there. I would, t- I would put it to you that right now, the bus strike that we're enduring is not a union versus management issue. It's an ideological issue about, you know, between basically uh, freedom and capitalism versus <laughs> socialism and collectivism. No, abso- and it absolutely. absolutely is. I'm going to demonstrate this in extreme detail on a future show and just literally take everyone step by step why that is so. Um, Dave. Well, I, I, would, I would suggest that as far as London City Council goes, uh, there is certainly some uh, dogmatic councillors out there. Um, I mean, they, the killer bees to, you know, to well, the best example. But I would suggest that actually that most councillors are not actually that ideological or that dogmatic. They just don't really want to rock the boat or anything like that. Uh, there, there, is, there, is a, there, is a, uh, there is a pushback whenever you suggest cutting funding to anything. And that's and the, the, generally speaking, the political inclination of most middle-of-the-road politicians is don't rock the boat too much. And because the boat is uh, one that's sailing towards higher deficits and higher taxes, well, that means that that boat just keeps going. That's an interesting comment because we're going to hear it make, made again later in the show. But believe it or not, we're at the bottom of the hour now. We've got to take a quick break. Well, not that quick a break. Uh, we will take some uh, time out for some ads. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. And what you're about to hear next... Uh, both going into this break and coming out on the other side. Um, it was an extraordinarily windy, cold day that day. You, ha- you guys had that rally uh, that was right in front of City Hall. Yes. And uh, here in London, and Kathy Shadle, among other speakers, came down. Kathy has been on the show before on other issues, not on taxes, but she certainly does cross-dress them all. And if you want to find out why she is always considered so controversial wherever she goes, you'll hear that in these (laughs) comments, that's for sure. Because she's going to give us an example of what uh, municipal politics is like a little bit in in Toronto. And, of course, she's talking about all levels of government at some point, but mostly at the municipal. So we'll take a break now, and after this we'll return to our subject. The people in charge, the people who work in the building behind you, they steal what? About half of your paycheck to pay their salaries and their perks and their benefits and their very generous pensions to name just a few things. We've listed them earlier. In medieval times, serfs and peasants were only obliged to pay 10% of their earnings in taxes. Some of you are actually paying four or five times more than a peasant in the Middle Ages to people who claim to be representing you. But uh, I don't think they're doing a very good job. Now, what do you get for your money? Again, we've heard we've heard some things, but, you know, I'm in Toronto, and, uh, you know, we, we have some interesting things, but it's not all Toronto. Uh, we get a lot of stuff that we could get uh, better and cheaper, you know, 
cheaper and better quality if private businesses were running it. And if you live in Toronto, you get to do things like, oh, I don't know, support hundreds of Muslim immigrants who, by their own count, have up to four wives, and they brag in the newspaper that all of them are on welfare. They're breaking the law, and we're paying them to do it while the authorities look the other way. How do the authorities spend their time instead, you ask? Well, by confiscating legally owned firearms from licensed law-abiding citizens on Mayor Miller's orders, as happened last week. The city shuts down gun clubs that have operated without incident for decades and where Olympic biathletes train. But then the same city lets thousands of protesters disrupt business and traffic for days on end. And if you complain, you're a racist. Given pride of place in the public square in front of Toronto City Hall, the famous Nathan Phillips Square, is a noble, somber, eternal flame monument, which we paid for, dedicated to a country that tortured our servicemen in prison camps during World War II. Meanwhile, though, over by the City Hall parking lot, in a little corner where no one can see it, they've hidden away a statue of someone worth remembering, Winston Churchill. I guess we don't want to look like we're glorifying a warmonger or anything because, you know, the city of Toronto is a nuclear-free zone. That, that always makes me uh, feel so much safer at night. I forced myself to go to the City of Toronto website, which I never visit, um, and spend as long as I could there. Uh, I am paying for it. I thought I'd check it out. And for page after page, mostly what the website tells you are all the intricate things you need to know these days just to throw out your garbage. One of my writing clients is an Orthodox rabbi in New York who doesn't have to follow that many rules about his stuff. But you'll be saddened to hear from my see on the site that the City Hall meditation room has been moved from the mezzanine to the basement. I guess they didn't want anyone to be seen praying in public. Now, men want to dance naked down Young Street once a year. That is totally different. And we have to see it. And you aren't allowed to complain about it. And you guessed it, we all get to pay for it. So that's what you get for your extorted tax dollars. But what would happen if you got to keep more of your hard-earned money? Hey, maybe you and your spouse, who have to work to pay all these taxes, here's a novel idea. What if you could stay home with the kids? It works out really well for the government, doesn't it? Making both people have to work just to pay their taxes. Because then they don't have the time or energy left at the end of the day to protest what the government is doing. And the earlier you have to send your kids to school and daycare, the sooner they can all learn about things like imaginary winter holidays invest, invented by convicted felons, also known as Kwanzaa, or the hoax known as global warming, or as I like to call it, the Loch Ness Monster of Weather. <laughs> then they learn about how some bad people 100 years ago were so mean and bad, they made some Indian kids go to school. You know, don't you, that if we hadn't made the Indian kids go to school, that's what we would be being sued for now? Oh, and of course, we can never forget, we have to bow down to the French, 
for the rest of our lives, even though they lost the damn war. <laughs> well, now you can see why people get very riled up about Kathy Shadle. As Bronwyn just told us, she goes, I don't like this woman. <laughs> You're not the only one that acts that way, Bronwyn. But you can see what the issues that are involved in uh, municipal uh, issues. It's not just about taxation. It's about what they're spending the money on. And uh, by the way, I don't know if you're aware, but London, Ontario has also been declared a nuclear-free zone. We did it back in the 1980s, and I and Mark Emery published a nuclear-free Holocaust edition of a newspaper where we actually taught everyone how to survive a nuclear holocaust, told them the realities of it, and believe it or not, Defense Canada wanted our research because we were miles ahead of them. And that's where you, what you get for your defense tax dollars. <laughs> I've got some hilarious conversations between defense officials and Mark Emery on the phone it was, it was another story in and of himself. But welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, a number to call if you want to join in on the conversation. And I'm joined in studio by David Aldred, who is from the, uh, the Forest City Institute, and Andrew Lawton, who is also from the Forest City Institute. Well, guys, what did you think about some of the things that, uh, that Kathy said there? Obviously, Bronwyn wasn't too happy about them. Just reminded me again how happy I was that I invited her. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did, and you were the person who introduced her. Yes. Now, uh, you know, I can see why your group might be interested in issues like freedom of speech after listening to Kathy Shadle. Because even talking about municipal issues these days, which is why I say I can't see political parties, etc., or that kind of a structure being avoided in future municipal politics. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that was the, uh, the the second time that that Kathy has uh, has spoken at a, a Forest City Institute event. The first one was a uh, symposium we had on free speech a while back, and I, I understand uh, she uh, was interviewed on this show around that time. And ironically enough, that event on free speech was not covered by the free press. Oh yeah, we uh, know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, Kathy's a great speaker on uh, on the on the issues of free speech, but as well as someone who's lived through uh, the the era of David Millergrad in Toronto, uh, she's done a lot uh, a lot of work and a lot of research on the mismanagement of money there. So uh, we had to uh, to hear uh, her perspective as an outsider looking in as well, and uh, her uh, ongoing wit and charm doesn't hurt either. Now I can't speak for Bronwyn, but I know that a lot of people who object to the comments made that are like what uh, Kathy Shadle has talked about, uh, and the free press is one of them. Uh, they call her a racist because she's bringing up issues, just mentioning race. She's not a racist, and as I said on this show, if she was all against all the things that she talks about, she'd be against every bloody thing on the planet because what she's against is not those cultures and people and practices to some great degree, but to the taxpayer being forced to fund them all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the line has to be drawn. Don't you agree? Or, absolutely. absolutely. Oh. It's Her, her comments um, were, were misinterpreted in the blogosphere by saying, oh, Kathy Shadle hates Muslims, Kathy Shadle hates gays. Well, no, she just doesn't want to have, the t- have to have the taxpayer paying for gay pride parades in Toronto, half a million dollars. She doesn't want the taxpayers to have to pay for... Uh, for welfare, for individuals who are bragging about being on welfare and not trying to work. And not so. only that, she doesn't want to have to be prosecuted by a Human Rights Commission for speaking out against those very practices that she objects to. Exactly. And I think that's where the where, where things got into a lot of trouble, when, when the government really overstepped its grounds there. But that's where I, I, I can't see any level of government starting to keep its hands out of all the rest. Now, 
Speaking of taxes, <laughs> um, you know, we last discussed overspending at City Hall on this show on October 1st when we featured the Forest City Institute's uh, SOS campaign. I'm looking here, I've got a copy of uh, London's budget that was handed out in the paper 2009 earlier this year. I see a breakdown of where the city spends money, the kinds of things it's involved with. You know, statistics are one thing and can be very misleading, and always the argument is made, well, you're only paying so much. For example, uh, Centennial Hall is only costing each taxpayer 53 cents a year. Uh, convention center is only three and a quarter. Uh, the education facility is only six dollars and ninety-five cents. Sounds so innocent and, and unpresupposing. Of course, the the largest single service that we get is police at four. No, this is on a based on an average uh, twenty-three hundred ninety-five dollar tax bill, which I don't know how average that is, but um, out of that, that bill, $416 is for police, uh, $333 for social services, $315 for environmental and engineering services, third highest item. London Fire Services comes in at a fourth at 267 Now, I'm sure if you ask the average person, would you be willing to pay 200 bucks a year for your fire services? I think they'd say, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And yet, that's not how our taxes feel. What's going on? Where Where's all the money going? Well, I think uh, one of the, the, the first things to point out about uh, those numbers there is that you're right. When you read from the bottom up, 50 cents, not a lot. $2, not a lot. $4, not a lot. But if you add 50 cents to $2, to $4, to $6, to $8, and all the way up there, you get... Uh, as you said, around close to $3,000 there. So the little things do add up with taxes. And and I have uh, been in London for, for 20 years now. And Well, what about the let the meat cake? Uh, obviously, the council doesn't think that. They, well, they, they wouldn't even give us a $10 break on this. No, rate. no, you're right. I mean, there's no there's no choices on which services we get. Uh, I, I've lived in London for 20 years. I've been to Centennial Hall once, yet I'm paying for it each year. Even even if I don't use it there, so it's a it's a classic example of the problems with uh, with that 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 overtaxing is that uh, individuals in London are paying for stuff that they don't want to use, they never have used, they never planned on using, and these are services, uh, facilities, infrastructure, anything like that. So there's a huge problem there that that needs to be addressed, and it and it needs to happen soon. Uh, the city of Toronto is considering introducing sales tax. Should we? Not at all. <laughs> Generally speaking, when any, whenever anyone says introducing a tax, my answer is no without even hearing their argument. But uh, we already are paying sales tax. We're paying property taxes. We're paying Not, not municipal sales tax. No, but it, it's all connected. When we pay our provincial taxes, it gets transferred to the municipal government. When we get to pay our federal taxes, it gets transferred to the provincial and then to the municipal. So... Well, we're getting the HST as well. You know, the, the argument has always been, especially for those on the right, that uh, consumption taxes are generally better uh, than production and property taxes. I agree with you completely. Consumption taxes are better, provided you eliminate Bingo. income taxes exactly. and property taxes. Just, tax just, just policies would be fantastic yeah, if I, we got rid of the property. I would love it. In the United States, happen, the, yeah. the fair tax is the, is the big one they're debating there. So, I mean, I think that uh, I agree completely that uh, a cons- consumption tax is definitely better but you have to get rid of the other ones first. Um, you know, it was funny, in preparing for the show, I, when I prepare for shows, I get around to organizing my, my newspaper clippings and stuff. And uh, I took my London municipal file, which I just toss stuff into, okay, just pile until until I have to organize them. So I organize them in the 12 subject areas to give you an idea, just in 
subject areas, what the city's involved with. And here were the, the piles I created, uh, separate folders for each one, just clippings and tons of articles. The biggest one was municipal planning and visions, visions for the future. We'll talk about that shortly. The other one was governance committees. And, of course, we no longer have a board of control. The next election is going to be a little different without a board of control. Uh, taxes, spending, and budgets. Not exactly a big one. Infrastructure, roads, services, police, fire, waste removal, snow removal, lighting, social services, including welfare, subsidized housing, accessibility of handicapped, libraries. Uh, they're into energy. They're into hydro. Transit, bus, taxis. they got a monopoly going and regulate rates. Uh, they have special traffic. Uh, they're, they're trying to regulate cars. Uh, they're into recreation and entertainment in a big, big way. Uh, they regulate the market, private housing, landlord licensing, development charges that we see everyone facing. And then, of course, there's a whole green environment movement, uh, mostly consisting of bans from idling to bottled water and all sorts of anti-capitalistic stuff. And then finally, there's politics, elections, and personalities, which is a subject we're going to be talking about next after this break, because at this point, we're, we're going to have to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to look at what is the future. But this next clip you're going to hear is also from uh, the SOS tax protest, but it's not Kathy Shadle. This is just Tim Hodges, who, uh, by the way, gave a terrific speech there. Too bad I couldn't play the whole thing. He was dressed to the hilt and, and just gave a wonderful presentation. But I think he's also, um, this is from a London perspective, of course, uh, he puts uh, he put a little bit of your agenda into, into his speech and what uh, maybe people in London could do if they want to do something about all these high taxes. And we'll be back right after this. Thank you, Andrew. I was speaking to a city council a few years ago. I won't mention this council's name, and I promised them anonymity if they told me the truth. I asked them what was the worst spending decision they had seen so far on their, on their term of uh, city council. They told me about the decorative dam at Springbank Park. The only purpose of this dam is to raise the water level slightly so that canoeists can paddle up and down the river. Now, $10 million just for a special interest group. So what can we do about silly spending decisions such as this? While talking more to my city council friend, he or she explained to me how group dynamics worked and how they didn't want to be the only person to vote against this. If they did that, they might not be invited out to play pool afterwards with their other city council members or invited over to the mayor's husband's bar for drinks after the council meeting. Let me tell you folks, $10 million is one hell of a bar tab. Yeah. In about a year, you will have your chance to either support, vote, or run yourself as a candidate for City Hall. We need to elect more non-group thinking politicians and independent minds. Councillors that won't just vote along with the group. We need people like you to stand up and go out and support these people. Only you, the voters, are able to stop 
overspending madness on city council. Woo! I see here that you both have just arrived in San Francisco. Do you have any jobs lined up? No, um, actually we weren't planning on staying here very long. Have you got a place to stay or anyone who can vouch for you? No, we were traveling with a friend, but we were separated right after we arrived. You have any way of contacting this friend of yours? Not at the moment. Well, in that case, I'm afraid you're going to have to stay here in the sanctuary for the time being. You mean we can't leave? It's for your own safety. Really? And it's the law. What about jobs? How are we supposed to find a place to work? And somewhere to live if we are stuck in here? Well, one of the services we provide is job placement. And how long does that usually take? I wish I could give you a definite answer, but jobs are hard to come by right now. What with the economy and all. My advice is to be patient. In the meantime, take these. They're your ration cards of Deep Space Nine uh, that was actually aired, oh, what, 20 years ago? Sounds like the cities of today that we might end up having, because all the services they offer us, you know, and, and things just get worse and worse, and of course, rationing is the order of the day. I think those writers knew something. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you only for a few more minutes until noon. And I'm joined in studio by two guests from the Forest City Institute, Andrew and David. Uh, guys, I, I had another guest in the studio not too long ago, and that was um, Dr. Kimball Ainsley of, of uh, Nordex Research. Uh, he was on with Robert and I a few weeks ago, October 15th. You can catch that show online if you like. And he indicated that the top issues showing up in his polling results were roughly as follows. Uh, growth and jobs taxation, crime, and road conditions. We talked about London's transportation plan. The big question was, is there one? And on the economic front, we have the ongoing battle between business and an interventionist city hall. And on the energy front, Kim predicted that Ontario was about to have a very green and very expensive future. Do you think he's called the shots right on a lot of those issues? Is that That's about right to me, certainly. <laughs> yep. and, and is that where you guys are going? With, with your issues, your, your priorities, or are your priorities a little different from that? Well, apart from the electricity, but uh, generally speaking, those are, are exactly our priorities. Our priorities, I think, are how we want our priorities, and I believe our priorities are the same as an average taxpayer's. Uh, you know, the roads, uh, basic services, the ones that have not been improving for years, that have been deteriorating for years, except for when there's uh, some uh, federal money coming down the pipeline. Well, but this year was that big year for a lot, yeah, exactly. lot of construction. Yeah, I mean, well, that, exactly. That's the whole point. Our, our city council has basically outsourced <laughs> infrastructure well, renewal now at this uh, point. And I, and I think to go with, uh, from another point of view is here, our priorities are the same as, as city halls, except our solutions to those priorities are just far more viable. Like, uh, we think the economy is immensely important, but we don't think that overtaxing and overspending is the way to help the economy. So I, I think that uh, one of the things, and as uh, you played the, the speech by Tim Hodges there uh, about uh, the dam and about, mm -hmm. uh, about uh, other other spending decisions there, and I think he touched on a very important point, which is where the Forest City Institute comes in, is that everyone, 
everyone listening to the show, everyone who's not listening to the show, has the opportunity to make a difference. They can vote for the candidates. They can run to be a candidate in city council. And, uh, I mean, I think there's there's a problem with, with apathy at the municipal level that, that we'd be lying if, they said, if we said that wasn't there. But I also think that uh, people need to, to stand up now and run as a candidate in city council. You know, that's a, that's a big, that's a tall order, actually, because most people of goodwill that I know, uh, the last thing they'd ever want to do is run in politics because they mm-hmm. know already that mm-hmm. politicians are among the most hated single group in, <laughs> in society and growing, getting worse, not better. And so it's almost a position you want to avoid in some ways. Um, how do you convince people like that? Uh, I mean, it's easy to convince someone who, uh, who's maybe on the left has a lot to gain from the process. Without, you know, Some people vote for a living, some people work for a living. You've heard that, that old <laughs> yes. statement. Um, how do you get people who are the type of work for a living to uh, really want to be in, in government a little more? Um, by the way, just, just in case you're not aware, elections are going to be changed next year. There's currently a bill before the Toronto legislature. Uh, elections have been routinely held on the first Monday of November, but this bill would uh, send voters to the polls on October 25th, 2010, and it's been a change. It's part of an omnibus bill that uh, includes a lot of other things. So the next election may well not be in November. You heard it here first, and I heard it first in uh, the Toronto Sun through the Free Press, which ran back on October 28th. So we may not be looking at uh, the same date next year. Well, that gives but. us a, a week less, I suppose. <laughs> 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 but as far as your, as your question of how do you how do you convince people to run, I think they wanted to get it in before the clocks went back. That was part of the ah, part, see, part right, of the yeah, objective yeah. as well. Well, I mean, I'm I'm fairly indifferent to the actual date myself, yeah. but um, as to the question of of how to convince good candidates to run, well, I don't think that's necessarily as hard. Uh, a problem is how to get them elected and how to get people, <laughs> how, to, yes. how to make voters less apathetic. Uh, in the last civic election, actually, there was quite a number of good candidates running. Uh, they don't do ter- terribly well. Uh, they need probably uh, some, uh, s- some support behind them um, to get their message across. But there's more to it than that. I think the big battle really is to get people to actually vote. Uh, I mean, the, the voting rate in municipal elections is very, very low. And the reason for that is basically that people, even if they think there's a good candidate, really don't think anything is going to change. I, I think uh, that's... Um, I, do you really think that changing the voting rate is going to change anything? No, not changing the voting rate, well, but getting I, people who are actually maybe fed up with high taxes and high spending... And to get them get to run, they, for, get them to see a candidate who's actually willing to. Well, it's generally it's generally it's generally always been said in Canada that uh, the higher the voting rate, the better the the candidates on the right do, and a lot of the reasons for that is that the people on the right have become so disenfranchised by city council, and they're like, oh well, nothing's going to change anyways, and that's a, a mentality that uh, that we've all seen at at every level of government at some point in our lives. But uh, I think if we do connect with people and say, well, we are a, another option for you. We are the going going to be the, the change on city council, and we being anyone who decides to run. So I, I think based on that, if we can get more people to vote uh, who haven't normally had faith that their vote even counts, that's how these candidates can win. Would there be some way... Now, the, the problem with, with especially new candidates in any forum is is name recognition and, and, and the public even knowing who they are. Our, uh, our media simply does not cover elections adequately at all. It doesn't tell people what, you know, what the candidates are about, the kind of work they may or may not be doing. 
the kind of investment they may make in the community. Election or all candidates' debates are basically uh, just a showcase for a handful of party faithful to come down to a meeting and everybody go rah rah and go home. <laughs> you're you're Nothing, right. You know, it's it's just it's not exactly. <laughs> not not <laughs> not put it? not everyone has the same privilege that Nancy Branscombe has, which is getting the taxpayer to fund promotional YouTube videos uh, to, uh, to to promote herself and have them professionally developed. So not everyone has the opportunity to to do that. But uh, I mean, ultimately, if you want to want to go to an old school campaign, no, you know, tactic, there's an it's knock on doors. <laughs> Nancy Branscombe was an example of a unite the right person. That's how I met her first in Toronto. She was working with the uh, the then uh, Canadian Alliance and all that, and she was coming in unite the right. And turns out she's a, she's left of left. Well, she united the bees once she got elected, well. though. So that was the. Uh, I, I think that that's the biggest thing. I mean, we we've seen a lot about from Joni Beckler and Gina Barber and Nancy Branscombe and and uh, and Judy Bryant. We've we've seen a lot of stuff from them that I'd rather not see in London. And and no. they are the old boys club of London politics. Everybody says uh, now we're not going to have a board of control next time round. Everybody says Mayor Anne Marie DeSico Best is kind of an unbeatable force as mayor. Uh, there's talk that Bud Polhill may toss into the race. Would he be somebody you might look at in terms of an alternative, at least to Mary? Um. I, I certainly would. I mean, uh, of all the people on council lately, with the exception of perhaps Paul Van Meerberg and um, Bud Polhill recently, I, this is, seems to be a bit of a conversion, but uh, in the past couple of years has been the one who's been saying most of the right things uh, compared to the other councillors. So, and and, uh, and he also hasn't, uh, think he has a chance, he hasn't commissioned any illegal patios on Richmond either. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, well. I, well, I, think, I think he does have a chance. I know Bud Polhill does have, does have a lot of name recognition in the city of London. And he, he's well liked. There, there's little controversy surrounding him. I think it all comes down to the policies he put forward. If he's mm-hmm. going to be a, a legitimate candidate that I would support, he needs to come out and say, "Look, something needs to change here." Not what uh, do what many people call moving to the center for for votes or right. moving to the left for votes in city council. So, if well, he can put forward legitimate <laughs> fiscal responsibility, I would support him. Well, it looks like we've got to move not just out of the center, but right out of the show because <laughs> our time is up, guys. I want to thank you both for showing up and, and making the show very interesting, and we'll see what happens with this up- upcoming election. Hope you guys have some success in uh, finding the kind of people you might want to, uh, to, to encourage to run for municipal politics. But that's it for our show today, and we hope that uh, you will join us again next week. Robert Vaughn will be back, and until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right here next week at the same time. Take care. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be <laughs> Now this was the moment I knew I wanted to move out of my house. I was 24 years old, starting to do stand-up, right? I got an agent who was calling me to book me for gigs, but I was using my parents' phone line and telling people that would call that it was my office. And you can't negotiate. It never goes while you're on the phone there. What are you talking about? I'm not doing it for that. That's nothing. You get some other sucker. Yeah. You get them to come up on the price or I will not be there. Meantime, my dad in the background. Michael! You forgot to flush the toilet! (laughs) Yeah, five bucks is fine. Yeah. Yes, I am a big loser, yeah.